0: Once asked the Buddha, Do you know, dear sir, emancipation, release, seclusion for beings? Is the question. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, in his notes to his translation, makes the point that he says these three words, emancipation, release, and seclusion are three designations or three kind of uh, definitions. Three ways of talking about nibbana, freedom. So I want to talk about the third of those tonight: seclusion. And in its sense, it has various levels. But in terms of nibbana, the Buddha says, really, seclusion from suffering, separated from suffering. So seclusion. When we first, uh, in English, first hear the word seclusion, the first aspect of it that comes to mind, of course, is physical seclusion, being separated from other people. And that's certainly an aspect, uh, that's really where it starts. And I'm sure you're aware, going through the history of all different um, kinds, all different religions, seclusion, the hermit life, is a, a really central aspect. In many religions, you know, Jesus spending the years in the wilderness, the Buddha spending his six years in seclusion, and then his whole monastic life, many ascetic wanders. I don't have to go through it all. So how does this, I want to start by talking about this aspect of seclusion and move through how does this serve our, hopefully, motivation, our, how does it serve our awakening, how is seclusion? How is this aloneness different from loneliness? And how is it, as in people who don't really relate to or understand the contemplative life, or even the sense of a hermit life for some time, it's often accused of being really self-centered, you know, really self-interested, really a kind of passive turning away from the world that is unhelpful. So obviously I don't think that. So just to begin, I was reading a book some years ago about different kinds of hermits. I don't even remember the title, the author. But I want to read a few things about Thomas, from Thomas Merton and also about the, um, the Coptic hermits of Egypt in about 280 AD. So this starts with talking about the Desert Fathers. The desert is the uninhabitable place. It is the region of desolation and solitude that surrounds and threatens the fertile plain. Along the Nile Valley, the desert is a silent presence, always visible to the dwellers in towns and villages as they live in comfort. Its bare hills are the, in quotations, waste howling wilderness of the Old Testament, the haunts of demons. Yet men and women have always been drawn from the comfort and security of their homes in the valley to the barren caves above in search of solitude. So it's kind of setting the tone. And then it goes on to talk about St. Antony of Egypt, who is one of the most famous, one of the most well-known even now, of the Desert Fathers. And there were, apparently, from what I've read, some Desert Mothers, but they had to masquerade as Desert Fathers. So <laughs> not as is not as well-known. So St. Antony of Egypt was the son of rich Christian parents, really quite well-to-do, and his parents died when he was young and left him well-provided. But it said in the book, when he heard the words of Jesus to the rich that you should sell all you have and give it to the poor, it said he somehow felt that they were spoken to him, and he did that. He sold everything he had, and he went into a, a life of solitude. So first he went to a local hermit, to learn how to do the solitude thing. And then he went to live, you know, on the outskirt of the village, and then he moved further away, and then he finally ended up at a deserted fort on the bank of the mile, way, way out in the desert. And it said he lived alone here without seeing a human face for over 20 years, being brought supplies of bread and water every six months by friends. Sometimes the friends who brought these supplies would hear terrifying shrieks and groans from behind the locked doors. Eventually, they could stand this no longer. I mean, it took them 20 years. They had some patience. (laughs) Eventually, they could stand this no longer, and they broke down the doors, expecting to release a wasted and emaciated maniac. Instead, Antony emerged healthy, sane, balanced, and really full of energy and advice to help people. He went to Alexandria to support Christians who were being persecuted by the Romans and spent the rest of his life alternating between retreats into solitude and emerging to help and advise others. So something interesting was going on behind those locked doors in the waste howling wilderness. And it wasn't just for himself, because it really served for him to go out and be with, serve all beings. So what's going on with that? What's this seclusion about? So the first aspect of seclusion is this separation from other humans. That's only the very beginning. It then moves from separation from humans. This is called in the in the Pali, you know, they have all these designations. The list is, this is kaya we seclusion of body. Kaya is body. So this is the first aspect of seclusion of body, where we seclude ourselves from other human beings, not out of hatred, not out of fear, but out of allowing, giving ourselves the space to turn inward and really understand more what's going on. This is from Thomas Merton. Again, he's talking about the Desert Fathers. The search for solitude is a journey to discover the inner self. The monks fled to the desert to become ordinary. If they had gone there to be extraordinary, this would have meant taking the world with them as a standard of comparison. They lived among the rocks because they wanted to simply be themselves. And Tignathan. Han. We've lost our taste for silence. We do not know how to be with ourselves without something else to accompany us. A book, a telephone, TV, conversation, you name it. We've lost our taste for being alone. So the first thing for us to do is to return to ourselves in order to recover ourselves, to be our very best. We need to reorganize our daily lives so that we do not allow society to colonize us. So that's the first kind of most basic sense of seclusion in the way of hermits, of really a period of time of solitude. And in a way, it's what we're doing here, without the communication, to give us some space, some time, where we're not accompanied by other people, by our distractions, to turn into and come to see what's going on. And that's what's happening, right? That's what's happening. We don't always like what's going on, but that's an important part of it. Okay, then the next aspect of Kaya is seclusion of body. And this is really the the reason that we would have the seclusion from other people to begin with, which is really seclusion of body from the flood of sense experience. I don't think I need to go into it. I will a little, but just that in our daily life, and apparently it was the same back in ancient Egypt, you know, apparently it was the same back in ancient India. There's just so much going on, so much sense experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and all. And it can be so powerful. Powerful. There's so much going on that, as you know, we just get lost in the habits of mind, of reaction to the sense experience. And because it's happening so fast, it's harder to notice. This is how Ajahn Chah describes it. He calls it kamoga, the flood of sensuality. Sunk in sights, in sounds, in smells, in tastes, in bodily sensations. We're sunk in them because we look at the externals. We look towards the sense experience. We don't look inwardly. Now, I mean, we're not saying sense experience is bad. That's life. It's the sense of being sunk. And back to, he says, similar to what Heather said last night from the Buddha, it's like being a slave when we're sunk in the sense experiences. Somebody else has control over you. When they tell you to sit, you have to sit. To walk, you have to walk. Being enslaved by the senses is the same. No matter how hard you try, you can't seem to shake it off. This is when our attention keeps being directed outwards, towards the sense. There's a pleasant sight, we're sunk in it. We're so flooded by it, we just move toward it, like it, right? We get into liking, we get into the whole story. The next minute there's an unpleasant, it's too hot. We don't even notice that. There's a version, I've got to do something. Throw off my robe, open the window, get out the door, write a note, do something. We go outside. It's too cold. I've got to go up to where it's warm. It's too noisy. I've got to go to where it's quiet. It's too quiet. I've got to go to where there's some energy. And it's, we're just, you know, the hound dog thing again. We've talked about this. This is like sunk in sense experience in the five, six senses. Again, it's not that there's anything wrong. And so this kaya weka, this seclusion from the flood of sense experiences, we're not talking about going into a sensory deprivation tank, you know, where you don't experience anything. We're just saying seclude, a little bit of seclusion so we have half a chance of noticing what's going on once in a while. You know, just, just how much seeing goes on. We talked about that the other day in one of the questions. The tendency is for the attention the mind to just go out to sights, out to sights, not ever remember to turn around and look at the mind. So the seclusion, the sense of simplifying, secluding ourselves from that flood that we live with in our daily lives, that everyone pretty much lives with in a daily life, in the information age, in the traffic age, in the You know, God forbid you should walk 50 yards without calling somebody or texting somebody on your cell phone. You know, you might be alone. You might not have any, you know, input. Somebody might not know you exist. It's like... So we come here. There's still plenty of sense experience, and that's fine, because that's what we learn from. We'll go to that in a minute. But just the physical, the seclusion of body, we're not talking... We're not in our normal life. There is uh, much more of an austerity here, I assume. I mean, it's possible you could live more simply than here. It is possible, sure. But I imagine for most of us, this is somewhat simpler. You don't have control over your food. You're sleeping in a relatively simple, austere room. You only have the clothes you bought. Hopefully, you're not doing like happens halfway through the three-month course at IMS in the winter. Suddenly all these mail-order packages started arriving. <laughs> LLD and REI, they're piling up in the foyer, you know, of IRS. Hopefully that's not going on here. Hopefully I didn't give you ideas. <laughs> so just that, just the simplicity, this little bit of renunciation, the seclusion, the flood of sense. The, Then the, the flood of uh, senses in our mind, the flood of reactivity, the flood of talking, the flood of endless, you all know that, you've all talked about how the mind just reacts and discusses every single thing that happens. And a lot of you are mentioning, I know it changes, but a lot of you are mentioning that that's slowing down. It's less gripping there's a more of a sense of space. The relentless chatter and commenting can slow down. And this is the, just the beginning of being able to see the space of heart and mind that just begins to have a possibility to glimmer through when we're not so sunk, in, not so much in the senses, but in our reaction to our being really turned outwards towards all the sense experiences. It's like a little space where something other can be noticed. There's an article, the New York Times Book Review, which I'm not finding. <laughs> a New York Times Book Review by a woman, about a book of a woman who was writing about, she was also writing about hermits. But this quotation is saying, talking about, uh, she talked about unhappy hermits, people who really go off to be alone out of aversion and hatred and, and fear and phobia. And we're not talking about that, okay? But she says the, the, the positive is um, it's an elected silence. The expression is Gerard Manley Hopkins that gives us the possibility of cleansing the doors of our perception so that we might even see the world as Traherne did saluted and surrounded by innumerable joys. And that's what starts to happen, joys and sorrows. But our perception, you know, the doors of perception, they get a little cleansed. And a lot of you mentioned the different ways where suddenly the sounds of the frogs are so clear, the bird calls are so clear, the moon when we come out and the stars seem so vivid. Our sense of the silence and the appreciation is so much more obvious. There's... Just some space, a little bit of space in awareness to notice these things when we're not so sunk in this flood of sensuality. And sometimes just this is enough, you know, that sometimes coming from a retreat, that's the thing we remember. Wow, you know, I just I remember one retreat, years, one of my first retreats, sitting somewhere and a little lizard was just crawling, you know, over a stone. That was it. I remember that moment, it was 30 years ago, because the perception was just so clear, there wasn't any reaction. It was just that sense of what it does is point our awareness back to the spaciousness, the silence of the pure heart, the pure mind. We begin to be able to get a glimmer of this because of this seclusion from being sunk in this flood of sensuality. And as many of you mentioned, I've certainly found it true, being in nature is an enormous, for many people, not for everyone, but for many, it's an enormous support to this. It's one of the real blessings, I would say, one of our real privileges to be able, of course, to be on a retreat like this, and to be able to be on a retreat in a place that has, in the midst of beautiful nature. And I have to say, many of the retreats I teach in all different places in the world, tend to be, if not always, sometimes it's in the city, but often it's located somewhere where there's nature. And just noticing so many people here have mentioned, you know, just in terms of the quiet, the steadiness, the peace, various aspects of being here, the the space, the sky, the frogs, that it somehow... Because there's not so much to react to, there's not so much sense of me about it, it kind of, as I said, it uh, reflects back to us if we can notice that possibility of purity, of silence, of space, of mind and heart. So when you're in nature and you're experiencing that, first just let it in. But then see if your mind tends to posit, oh, it's because it's so beautiful, it's out there. And then come back, turn your awareness around again and notice the quality of heart, the quality of mind that's, that's just silent at this moment, silent without all the reactions of liking, disliking, analyzing me, me, me. Just the frog sound, just the stillness of the stars. Just that sense, I know you know this poem, but I'll read it, that you get from this poem by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me and I awake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, And I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That peace isn't something that's out there in the stars, in the water, in the wood drake. That's the peace of a heart and mind that's non-reactive, non-clinging, not identified, really awake. It's great we can use the experience of nature to re-recognize over and over, but don't give it away to nature. Turn around and notice. That's one of the beauties, the joys, of a simple life of physical seclusion, seclusion from the flood of sensuality. It really makes awareness so much more accessible and available, you know. And you can see, I think, just from what I've said so far, that this seclusion isn't about just creating that kind of state. Oh, let me go throw myself down by the still waters and try and get, you know, peaceful again. And then hold on to it, come what may, you know. It's not, let me get rid of everybody, you know, and then just have some peace. It's not that. It's that this is um, supporting conditions to help us turn our attention away from being sunk in reactivity and sense experience and turn back and recognize what the heart and mind in a moment that's awake and free from clinging is like. That's available here and now. We just need to clear the decks a little bit so we can notice it. So Kaya Uweka, though, also includes, as I'm saying, the this, this simplification, which is a kind of renunciation, really. You know, what enforced renunciation then choice renunciation, just getting less and less involved with needing things, wanting things, doing things. That's one of the reasons for in, in uh, Buddhist countries and monasteries why eight precepts is often practiced. I, I'm not advocating that's what it should be, that one should do that, but that's really the underlying sense of it, to just free us up a little more from involvement. So the sixth one, not eating, afternoon... It's not to prove something, it's just to see just how much time and energy and wanting and dislike so goes into eating and how much kind of time is freed up when we don't eat in the evening. The next one about not wearing ornaments or jewelry or playing playing cards, going to entertainments, that's kind of obvious. But the other aspect is, is not wearing jewelry, not wearing Ointments, well, we can't wear much ointments here because they smell nice. So you can't smell nice and you can't. It's just not about, you know, the little time we spend kind of tending to looking good, you know, tending to how we feel, tending. That's all. Not that we have to deliberately look bad. It just, is, you know, noticing. That's the same thing, only in reverse. It's just noticing. And I've seen it myself when you're trying to decide what to put on that day. Notice what's going on in the mind not with judgment but what's feeding more craving what's feeding more aversion what feeds simplicity and space So when I was a nun only having three outfits and they were all pretty much the same you just took the clean one it was it was actually really nice you just get up and you put it on and now I can tell I'm having a bad day when I'm sitting there looking, oh, what can I wear today? Oh, this, it doesn't feel right, and that, and that, you know, it's like, oh my God, you know, who cares? Nobody, (laughs) nobody but me. And it's just all this extra hoo-ha. So it's this sense of renunciation. But another aspect of this simplicity, and this is really where a mindfulness practice begins to kick in, to play a part, is what's called restraint at the sense doors. So, there's the kaya, we wake of the seclusion of actually being separated from the sense experiences. So, you don't even really, you know, it's not there to pull you. But restraint at the sense doors is really the way we practice with mindfulness and wisdom right at the point of sense contact, which doesn't mean hating sense contact or, you know, avoiding the pleasant. It just means when there's sense contact, the five physical or the mental, satipanya. Mindfulness, wisdom, right at that point of sense contact. So we see what the sense contact is, and we notice what the mind does with it. That's restraint. Sometimes a little bit of restraint, you know, looking down, it can help because we see too much goes out through the eyes. Even the Buddha said, once in one sutta, if I can find it, It's a whole sutta, which I won't read. I'll just read one stanza about the, the way to awakening and the perfect monk, so to speak. But he's saying, uh, a bhikkhu, a practitioner, keeps her eyes from wandering restlessly with desire. And I can, I can really relate to that. You're doing your walking meditation, very, but the eyes are wandering restlessly with desire, you know? Almost like looking for something to connect with looking for something to like or dislike or judge or something, you know? You know, in a sense, when you're walking and somebody walks past and you just have to look. You just have to look. It's so, sometimes it's almost impossible not to look, even when you're paying attention. The craving comes, you think, I won't look, I won't look. You get really, and as soon as you let go, you look, right? (laughs) And what comes from the looking? Is it satisfying does it make you happy? I would say 10 to 1, it, it gives rise to judgment. <laughs> oh, go, right, why did I do that? I'm stupid. Oh, they look better than me. Oh, no, no. oh I'm doing better than them, whatever. Oh, why did I do that? Restlessly looking. So that's the sense of restraint at the sense doors. It can be not just sending your energy restlessly out with your eyes, not just sending it restlessly out with the ears, but it doesn't mean doing as a friend of mine once did. He put a blindfold on at IMS and walked around for three days blindfolded. That's, you know, I would say that's ignorance, not restraint at the <laughs> sense door. You know, I don't see. We're not going to learn from that either. So, but this sense of, res- of restraint, of renunciation, it doesn't get a good rap in this culture. How many of you thought, yeah, great renunciation. I love that idea. Maybe you did. I mean, you're already on the far side of the spectrum. You wouldn't even be here, you know. (laughs) But this is an interesting sutta I found because also the Buddha said the same thing. It's a sutta where Ananda comes with a householder, Tapusa, to the Buddha. And the householder is saying to the Buddha, um, he said, we're householders who indulge in sensuality, delight in sensuality, enjoy sensuality, rejoice in sensuality. (laughs) For us, indulging, delighting, enjoying, and rejoicing in sensuality, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, meaning in the the Buddha's teaching, the hearts of the very young monks and nuns leap up, at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this teaching is contrary to the great mass of people in this issue of renunciation. And the Buddha says, so it is, Ananda. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisatta, I thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart did not leap up at renunciation <laughs> it did not grow confident steadfast or firm seeing it as peace so the thought occurred to me well what's the cause what's the reason why doesn't my heart leap up why don't I see renunciation as peace and then the thought occurred to me actually I love the way this is phrased a thought occurred to me I because I, I just get the sense of the impersonal nature of thought the thought occurred to me why don't I see you know I like that um, although I know that's the English, it wouldn't it wouldn't play that way in Polly. The thought occurred to me: I haven't seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that. I haven't investigated that theme. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with it. That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, it doesn't grow steadfast, doesn't see it as peace. Right, right there we have a real. Good example of the difference between intellectual understanding and real deep intuitive insight knowledge, you know. And so showing that it was the same for the Buddha as it is for us. On some level, really you wouldn't be here if you didn't have some real understanding and trust that seclusion, that renunciation is somehow, somehow going to help us. You know, sometimes we just really love it too. But as we pursue that theme, as we really investigate it, the the joys, the rewards of simplicity, of restraint at the sense doors, of seclusion from being lost in senses, the rewards of that, and as well, and this isn't with judgment, this is with interest, is there, is it true that there's drawbacks to sense pleasures, to being so lost in that? So we explore that, and we see for ourselves, and that's when renunciation really is, it's one, of the, um, it's one of the paramis, the ten perfections, but it's also one of the three right attitudes or right ways of thinking, which is the second stage of the Eightfold Path. So renunciation is really a deep inner intention, understanding of mind and heart. We could take everything away from us and just be sitting here burning with desire and hating it that everything's taken away from us, that's not really renunciation. But when the renunciation comes, just a little thing. I'm sure you've seen it here. Maybe you know you always have thirds at lunch, or you always go down for tea, and one day you say, you know, I really don't want that. I don't need it. It's not the you, stupid, you should. It's like, oh, I don't need that. The renunciation is really the, the seeing that it goes away and the space opens up. So true renunciation is actually a state of, of happiness, of simplicity, of joy. But in our practice of restraint of the sense doors, it's not always, of course, that way. So the restraint is bringing in this satipanya, this mindfulness wisdom at the point of sense contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, emotions, not to judge it or say it's bad, but to see how the mind behaves in contact with senses, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So we've talked about this a lot. I don't think I have to go too much, and I'm not going to go too much into it, but really this is, in terms of kaya viveka, seclusion of body, this is where it starts to move into the next level, citta viveka, seclusion of mind. Seclusion of heart. We begin with that, with the mindfulness of just noticing. Okay, something pleasant comes. We notice it, and we notice what the mind does. Sometimes it just rests there pleasant. Sometimes it appreciates. Sometimes they're not really quite there, and it goes off into that whole story, like I said before. We notice with unpleasant. They can hit the unpleasant and just zoom off into a whirlwind of aversion and fear and reactivity. And there's a whole range in between, and it's possible to just that restraint right at the sense door. Notice the hearing. Notice it's felt as unpleasant. Notice the little leaning of aversion, and eh, don't have to go there. Same with neutral, which it's hard to even notice. Never mind the delusion, the spacing out, the who knows what's happened that accompanies it. But boredom is often a response to neutral. So in this this satipanya, at the point of sense contact, mindfulness and wisdom, this is where uh, the deep habits of our mind and heart, the ones that cause so much suffering in our life, begin to be able to be seen more clearly. Right? I know you all know this. Sometimes it's very subtle, sometimes not so subtle. But this is where the seclusion from so much sense input and the spaciousness and the silence of mind and the awareness that we can begin to touch begins to serve as a support so that we really begin to see how these habitual reactions of heart and mind of aversion, of clinging, of delusion how they arise, how they're conditioned where they go, how they feed our sense of self And how when there's mindfulness wisdom right there, sometimes they don't happen. It's fascinating. That's a big part of what our practice is about. We don't have to get so obsessive about it. So sometimes that's really quite subtle. The the examples I've been given are relatively subtle. Seeing the habits that come from relationship, from meeting pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And so when when the chatter has died down quite some, there's not too much, you know, flood of input Sometimes that's just what you're knowing. You think nothing's going on. You're just having these kind of sittings that are painful and unpleasant and your mind's a little reactive. And oh, you know, I'm just tight. I have one sitting where I'm all tight and in pain. And then the next sitting is kind of relaxed and open and peaceful and then tight. You think nothing's going on. But that's huge. Because what's going on there is really moment to moment with mindfulness, wisdom, seeing. The cause and effect, cause and effect, the nature of physical, mental experiences arising constantly, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral constantly, and how the suffering is created or not in the mind and heart and how the mind relates to it. Over and over and over. Yeah, we're seeing that moment by moment by moment. And the part of us that's impatient, in a hurry, We go, yeah, well, I've seen it, I get it, it's time to move on. You know, I didn't come here for one month, pleasant sitting, unpleasant sitting, pleasant walking, <laughs> I'm like, eh, 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 something should happen, you know. You I mean, so know, this says, moment after moment, this is a lot that's happening. You know, I want to go back to the day blind stars and lie down. By, oh, you, no, you don't get to do that now. You get to walk and notice pain in the leg. You get to sit and go, oh, this is really nice and spacious. I don't have to do anything. Why doesn't it stay like this? because I wanted to. Okay, I won't want, I won't want. You know, and just we're watching out (laughs) over and over. But in the space and silence, sometimes, not every retreat and not for everybody, but it's really often happens that sometimes what comes up is not so subtle. It's really that... uh, St. Anthony's demons start to come up. You know, the wailing, the shrieks and groans of St. Anthony behind the door. And really, sometimes, as the silence and the lack of our normal input and our normal conscious or unconscious ways of denial, of diversion, of filling ourselves up, of keeping these things down, as they're not there. And as we're cultivating moment after moment of of mindfulness wisdom is just that accepting, receptive, kind awareness. Not with a hierarchy. Just whatever's arising comes into receptive, present moment awareness, as Heather was talking about last night. Our denial systems stop being fed. And so sometimes really what comes up, and it can come up slowly, about some little incident that's happening here, or it can come up with a huge rush and overwhelm us, but our sometimes really strong so-called demons start to come, overwhelm us for a while. And often the content starts out as something really little on the retreat, some little incident, something you said, some note you got, and it could be anything. And your mind's going, this doesn't make sense. I'm completely lost in terror over this little thing, you know, and we, we fight with it doesn't make sense for a while. It doesn't it got nothing to do with what's happening. It's just triggering our deep stuff. And so it's not only the five hindrances, <coughs> which Heather talked about, but often for people it'll come to whatever your really deep personal story, it usually has a story, it may not, but... Whatever your demon is, self-hatred, terror, pride, you know, fear of chaos, needing to control, sleepiness, worthlessness, helplessness. Take your pick. You probably know yours, and if you don't, you will. (laughs) One of my teachers said, in the light of awareness, all the snakes come up out of their holes. Not always and not all at once. And it's not, don't get into if it's not happening, something's wrong. Don't get into if it is happening, something's right or wrong. It's just sometimes this happens. Rarely do we think, great, this is what practice is supposed to be like. You know, unless you've been really bored and then you welcome it (laughs) rather than boredom, And that's not also helpful. But this is a really important and when it's happening essential part of practice. Most of us, of our journey, really. We want to get over this, you know. We want to come out of the shrieks and groans like St. Anthony, balanced, sane, whole, helpful. But really, deeply, in this world, to be in this world, to really be able to be with other people, to be with all the suffering and the confusion and the hatred in the world and the cruelty. I don't know, personally, I've got to see that in myself. If I can't meet it in myself, how am I going to be able to meet, be with somebody else with compassion when they're manifesting it? How am I going to keep from just being beaten down psychologically just by reading the newspapers? You know, so it, this meeting for ourselves, our own freedom, our own ability to be with these demons when they arise without being so afraid we never even get near them, you know? or without having them drive our behavior when they come up in our life, because they're so strong, and we haven't really had practice of meeting them, of learning to understand them, of learning to befriend them. So I know for me, whenever I get to particular particular like, feeling, as usually feel it here, I don't have to go into it, in my story, we all have our own stories, but when I start to get to the reactions of my mind, I start to get to what I call the crazy place, where I can tell my reactions are way, way, way over the edge of what's going on, you know, and I can see that. But I'm believing them. I mean, I'm not just going, oh, yes, over the edge. I mean, really (laughs) feeling them. And I'm starting to feel crazy. You know, oh, this is the crazy place. And I'm glad when I recognize that. Because then when I can just feel the feelings, I don't have to find the story, but the feeling, the closer I get to it, is like, I'm going to die if I feel that. That's the story. Then I'm really happy now. I'm, I didn't used to be, but now I'm really happy when I recognize that. Because I know I'm not going to die. And when the attention can just rest for a moment with that, just rest there, it doesn't fix it or anything. Oh, it's like this. It's like all that crazy reactivity stuff, just for that moment, dies away. Because that was all a smokescreen not to feel it. You know, I mean, I didn't know this, but that's what it was. 50 years of smokescreen not to feel something. So sure, we're sitting here, we're in the seclusion, there's more space for this to come up, and we won't always recognize it. But just know, just know it's an essential aspect of our journey. You know, we need to honor it, respect the power of it, and know really deeply, I really believe this, the less we're in fear of it, the less we need to be driven by it, the more we're freed for compassionate response. This is from Thomas Merton again, talking about the hermits. The hermits who left the world as though escaping from a wreck did not merely intend to save themselves. They knew that they were helpless to do any good for others so long as they were floundering about in the wreckage. But once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they had not only the power, but even the obligation to pull the world to safety after them. So in my mind, and I'm only speaking for me, that's really the direction our seclusion is moving us in, the ability to really do that. So seclusion of body moves into citta-viweka, seclusion of mind. The classical definition, seclusion of mind, heart," means secluded from the hindrances, the five that Heather spoke of. And often Chittaweka is thought of only as like shamata deep absorption practice on one object, but it's not that. Chittaweka really is it has different levels. But as there's moment after moment of just mindful presence, awareness, knowing what's happening, just as I've been talking about, just as we've all been talking about our whole practice, moment after moment of that simple awareness, noticing the attitude, that pure awareness, moment after moment of that leads to this chitta The mind, the heart becomes more and more secluded from the hindrances. Not like you're holding him away, oh no, but you know those times, and sometimes it's for a moment, sometimes it lasts quite a while, where you're not putting out any effort, but you just, you just kind of notice wanting and aversion is just not really coming up. And something comes across your field of vision that normally would trigger wanting or aversion, and it doesn't. And you're even looking, kind of waiting. <laughs> you know, where is it? Am I making this up? And it really doesn't come. Go you know, Wow, I mean, we don't really trust that, but it's nice. Definitely nice. So that's the first step of citta viveka. It comes from the steadiness of mindfulness. It can deepen. It can deepen whether it's with one pointed shamata practice or continuing steadiness of mindfulness, where it goes to a place where it's not just a little bit secluded from the hindrances, but where it's, it's the mind gets further and further away from the hindrances. It's like more secluded. The hindrances are like weak and far away. Wanting and aversion just don't come in so much. It feels much more stable. This state of mind and it is a state of mind it feels much more stable where you're not like so afraid. Oh my God! If I do the wrong thing, you know, self judgment's going to come back. There's a way. It's just more trustworthy. And so that could be leading into deep absorption practice of jhana, but it also is in moment-to-moment mindfulness and changing objects, like Upandita would talk about kanaka samadhi, momentary samadhi, and vipassana jhanas he would talk about. And it's a place where the mind, the heart, feels really light, malleable. It's really very pleasant. Mostly, we really like it. And it's useful, certainly, because we just to see what it's like when the mind and the heart is non-reactive. We can touch that space of purity. When we can really see, it's possible to be with very pleasant experience and not get lost in craving, not to even have it come up. Oh, that's lovely. But really important, keep the light of interest, of investigation alive, awake in these states. It's really easy for us, especially when we first start to, at times, have states like this arise. We can't make them come. They just arise. It's easy, or one can kind of mistake that silence, that malleability, that peacefulness, that non-reactivity. It feels like, oh, now I've got it. You know, this is it. This is what I've been practicing for. And, I mean, it's very good, Most of us would be, okay, that's good enough, you know? If I could just have this, it would be good enough. But that's not the point, you know? It's a conditioned state. Don't mistake it for freedom. Don't mistake it for the real seclusion from suffering that is the heart and mind of non-clinging. I've noticed two things that can happen in that space. You look and see for yourself. And one is that we subtly get attached. We're really aware there's no desire, there's no aversion, this space is nice. We're even saying, I know, this is just a conditioned space, I know, you know. But we subtly get, again, lost in looking at the space and forgetting to just notice the attitude of mind. And wanting can come in, subtle identification come in. It's just like, okay, this is good enough. We stop investigating. Or the, we get clinging, we get clinging. Or the other one is we just, and this is what I tend to do, is get, just get complacent. Oh, great. Now it's all here. Nothing else to do. No more cl- craving. No more aversion. I can just coast around. And, you know, and at first it's true in a state on a retreat where you just can do whatever arises. You take a walk. You don't sit. You think it doesn't matter because the mind is clear. There's interest. It's balanced. It's stable. If someone says something to me and goes away, it doesn't rock the samadhi. We think, well, that's it. So gradually we just do more things and more things and more things and before you know it, you're down in the bookstore and buying trinkets and writing letters and suddenly (laughs) you check and you go, wait, wait. It doesn't quite have that same feeling. (laughs) It slips up on us. We get complacent. The Buddha said, two things I never lost sight of while I was still an unenlightened bodhisatta. One was never to be lax, never to give up my effort. The second, never to settle merely for wholesome states of mind. And that's powerful because, you know, mostly given life, I'd settle for wholesome states of mind, but that's not freedom. It's wholesome states of mind. So he's just saying, keep looking, and that becomes our Cohen. You know, our Cohen, not to. Mistake the wholesome states of mind, the peace of the non-reactive mind. Experience that. But a constructed state of citta wakea, dependent on conditions, is going to also deconstruct when the conditions change. So, you know, sometimes when it's peaceful and quiet, we get kind of clinging to it without realizing, and we think, we impute it to the circumstances. So when there's a noise, we get really upset because it's wrecking my quiet. And the quiet's what's giving me peace, right? I mean, sometimes at the Forest Refuge in Barry, I won't even tell you the meetings we've gone through because there's this noise that happens when someone walks out the door near the meditation hall and bangs it. And then the people in the meditation hall hear that bang, and it really upsets their samadhi. We have meetings about stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that was misplacing <laughs> what the real point of Chitta uweka is. It's not to hold on to the silence. Don't mistake external silence for freedom or even for peace. So our koan is to use the seclusion of bodies, seclusion from all the sense inputs, seclusion from the hindrances, to use it to keep recognizing that the silence, the space of freedom, is the silence in that moment of the heart and mind that's awake and free from clinging, free from sense of self. Clinging, sense of self pretty much go together. And that's our calling, to keep discovering that. Whenever we start to impute the peace outward, impute the freedom outward, and outward could be, out to a very subtle state of mind, just turn around and notice the purity of awareness of the knowing mind itself. This is the way Buddha Dasa talks about it in his book, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, which is a fascinating, it's a really interesting book, and it's all about, he's talking about shunyata, usually translated as emptiness, but this Santi Karo translates it as voidness. But really, he's just meaning it in, in two simple ways. Shunyata, in his first meaning, which just means that all things and all beings are void or empty, how does he put it, void, empty of a particular sense of self, just all conditions. He said that's everything, in the mind, in the heart, a speck of dust, a sparrow flying, empty of sense of self. Then the second application, and that's one we can really look at in our own experience over and over, Shinyata in its second application, it points to the quality of the mind, of the heart, when it is not grasping and clinging at anything. So we can turn around and notice that quality. Oh, well, this is what he says. I encourage you in any moment that the mind, the heart, has any measure of this voidness, this emptiness of clinging to anything, even if it's not absolutely or perfectly empty, keep recognizing it. Actually, on any one day, shunyata is there repeatedly. Shunyata as that quality of the heart and mind that's empty in that moment of clinging, of grasping to anything. Actually, on any one day, shunyata is there repeatedly. Even if it's not an absolute fixed shunyata, it's still very good, as long as we take the trouble to notice it. If we take an interest in this sort of voidness, this shunyata, that will make it easy to practice and to sink into it, to attain it more and more. So he says, generate a contentment with voidness. Generating a contentment with just noticing the quality of heart, of mind, when it's not clinging or grasping at anything. No big lights going off. It's not conditional, actually, on any kind of seclusion. But in that moment, that's the seclusion from suffering. There's no grasping, there's no clinging, there's no identification, it's just this. That sense of that Wendell Berry talks about, of just lying there, the peace of wild things, a moment of wakefulness without any grasping at anything, without any sense of me or mine. Ah, Just that. As Buddha Dasa says, we all have many moments of that every day if we would just get interested in noticing. And then if you cling the next moment, just notice that, how it feels different. Again from Merton, second to the last thing about the Desert Fathers, talking about one who is called to solitude, one is called a solitude, is called to emptiness. And in this emptiness, she does not find points upon which to base a contrast between herself and others. On the contrary, she realizes that she has entered into a solitude that is really shared by everyone. And so her solitude is the foundation of a deep, pure, and gentle sympathy with all other humans. More, it is the doorway by which she enters into the mystery of God and brings others into that mystery by the power of her love and her humility. Just a moment of emptiness. And I just will end with one other quotation that's very similar. Again, we're using, it's, it's, it's from another Christian, so it's using the Christian terminology. But it's a woman who an Anglican nun, again from this book about hermits, an Anglican nun who had really whose need for solitude took her to an abandoned cabin on a cliff, which she fixed up and lived there for 18 years, but not quite alone because people kept coming and bringing their troubles to her. And she believed. She was always well, welcoming and willing to meet them because this is what she says. She believed that the responsibility of the solitary is, these are her words, to stand at the intersection between the love of God and suffering humanity. The responsibility of the solitary to stand at the intersection of the love of God and suffering humanity. That's we wake a seclusion from suffering. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. Tomorrow, in the 815 sitting, we'll have a chance to again take the refuges and precepts, just so you know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.